I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Bruce Pascoe in conversation with Kerry O'Brien, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Bruce Pascoe's remarkable book, Dark Emu, has had a very unusual history in the sense that it was first published five years ago and where most book sales would have well and truly collapsed long before now, and in fact the first print run was 2,000 copies. Uh, Interest in Dark Emu has just continued to grow. Until lunchtime today, when I checked with John Mitchell, who's running the on-site bookshop, Dark Emu has been the best-selling book of the festival. This is, this is six years after publication. Uh, his more recent offshoot, Young Dark Emu, adapted for a younger audience, was published this year, and at the moment is the fourth or fifth, I'm not quite sure, but the fourth or fifth best-selling book of the festival. Now, I couldn't think of a more important time for these two books to be in healthy circulation throughout Australia because in their essence they tell a story on the culture and history of first Australian civilization before white settlement that is very contradictory to the one most widely peddled for more than two centuries, uh, which was of a primitive nomadic civilization, easily dismissed by colonialists as inferior, uh, which made it so much easier to sweep them aside, often violently, and swallow up their country. Pascoe uses other white man's evidence from the official records to put the lie to that insulting imagery and etches a different story of sophisticated, culturally rich agrarian society which was as inclined to put down roots as it was to travel. The timing is important because somehow we have to find a way to put the pathway to a true, genuine reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians back on track. hopefully built around the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was written and endorsed by more than 250 first Australian leaders from across the continent. Now, Bruce is an accomplished writer of long standing, many books, many contributions to Indigenous literature, and is currently working on two films for the ABC and a novel. He has uh, Bunyurong, Tasmanian and Nguyen heritage. Would you please give Bruce Pascoe a big welcome? Bruce, what are the most uh, important aspects of what you've been able to document that gives you such a different story to the overwhelming picture painted by white Australian colonists uh, colonists about Indigenous civilisation that has survived really until relatively recent times? Well, I was... After I wrote a book called Convincing Ground about the uh, frontier war in Australia for the land, I began getting a lot of um, feedback from um, readers and about a third of those responses were from Aboriginal people and that thrilled me um, because I, I, um, I wondered who I was writing books for and it thrilled me that my own people were responding to, to the books. Um, and 
people were sending me information about this um, phenomena in Australia of Aboriginal people growing food on a large scale, growing more than enough for the, that day's food. And I started talking about this and I was wrapped over the knuckles by some academics in Canberra, you know, some of the most prominent Australian academics in the areas of, um, uh, you know, ethnography and uh, history and uh, archaeology, things like that. And I thought, I'm, not, I'm going nowhere with this story um, because I haven't been able to convince the most intelligent people in the country. Uh, so, well, I, I um, that could, that could possibly be disputed, Bruce. So I, I thought the only way I can um, prosecute uh, this case is to work from sources that those people respect, and the sources that those people respect are the voices of the the so-called pioneers. They they're like. Um, they're sacrosanct. Even uh, John Howard believes in the explorer's uh, diaries. So I, w I worked from those and I, I left that meeting, the, the last meeting I had with those people, all lovely people, Kerry. You know, I got a cup of tea and a bit of cake. Very nice it was. <laughs> and, um, but I left there and I was shivering. I hate to say the word rage, but I was shivering and I went to the first second-hand bookshop I bought, went down to the back of the shop where the Australian history was. It's always down the back of the shop. And um, I came across uh, Sir Thomas Mitchell's uh, journals into tropical Australia. And I bought it on page 90. I read it in the car on page 90. It said that Mitchell rode through nine miles of stooked grain. And that word stook stood out because I'd never heard it in all my years of education referred to Aboriginal people. Mm. So there it was. And uh, the more I read, the more I found, and I keep finding it. You know, I've just come back from Burrup Peninsula and um, I was looking at this incredible spiritual art gallery, the oldest representation of the human face. And unfortunately, um, Woodside had to bulldoze through the middle of it because they had to put a gas plant there because there was 15 years of gas to be harvested offshore. So, of course, you've got to go through the first depiction of the human face. Um, it is a joke. Come on. Um, and, and, but I'm then confronted with the idea that in amongst all this uh, are these massive yam gardens on the Burrup Peninsula. You know, it's, it's dry and harsh climate and the old people who had produce the world's most first and largest spiritual statement on earth. We're also um, making gardens to grow yams. So this doing it, information... Doing it, doing it with great skill, weren't they, in terms of using the environment? They weren't adapting, working... Adapting yeah. the particular plants to the particular environment, which often was harsh. Well, they were Australian plants and they were, they were used to harshness. And um, the, so the people were working with the country. And, um, you know, you think of how the country threw up its hands last summer when all the fish died, as if this was an imponderable. How could this happen? You know, we're growing bloody cotton, you know, it, which is, you know, thirstier than a truckie. And, um, it, and, yeah, and we, you've we, got a very we racist wonder, style, Bruce. 
we wonder why things are going going backwards. It's um, it's inconceivable that we can do this. I uh, and at the same time last summer I listened to um, a farmer who was deeply distressed. In, he was in um, South Gippsland, Alliston Lester's country, and he was bemoaning the fact that his soil was blowing away. Mm. It was dry. It was hot. It was summer. Um, his soil's blowing away. And it was, you know, the sand country on the, the edge of the ocean. And he'd ploughed it. You know, we have to start thinking uh, about our soils, our precious soils. And um, if they're th that light, we can't afford to plough them in summer. Can you, so yeah. instead of, you know, putting 10 bucks in a hat for the poor farmers of Australia, we need to uh, put in a little sign saying, wake up. Can you... Can you build a case that if colonists and those who've come after the colonists to work the land had been more switched on to the skills and the knowledge and the common sense that was going into indigenous agriculture and food production, that perhaps a great deal of the, of the, the pain and the issues we have today might have been avoided? I'm, I'm sure of it. Um, but colonialism didn't allow that because the... If you're a Christian country and you invade someone's land and you take that land and you kill the people um, and those that aren't killed you put into a mission and uh, if they have children you take those children away, um, then you have to try and explain that uh, act to your other Christian um, fellows. And to your own conscience. And, and to your conscience and to your God. Um, all of those things require an answer. So. Your answer is that the people don't deserve the land. You know, it was common for people to say that God made a mistake when he put Aboriginal people in Australia because it's, you know, really productive land and uh, this was one of God's mistakes. And as far as I know, God doesn't make mistakes, but um, this was apparently one of them. It was an oversight. Australia was an oversight. But th that meant... If, you, if you're going to behave like that, you cannot accept anything that those people have done as being an achievement or you're flying in the face of your own prejudice. So you have to deny that Aboriginal people were part of the human species and Australians did. I particularly love the, uh, the way you have essentially used these, these white explorers uh, I mean, you said so-called pioneers, by which I assume you meant that the people who'd come here 60 million years before them were the pioneers. Mm. But nonetheless, um, that you've used the facts that the, as these people described them as they saw them, but you saw it with such a fundamental difference to the way they did. Um, James Kirby, for instance, a young white explorer-drover in early Victoria who described a quite intricate indigenous fishing technique which he saw as evidence to back up stories he'd been told of indigenous indolence. Blackfellows were lazy. Yeah. Tell me about that. It's an incredible yarn. Um, Kirby, on, on about his third day in the country around Swan Hill, uh, where he and a young man called Beveridge set up a station on behalf of Beveridge's father, which, after which the suburb of Beveridge is now named, um, they're there and it's about their third day. They're going to take up a station which is called Tintinda and you can still see that name on the gate. Um, and 
Kirby, he's, he's only 18 years old. He learns to smoke at Tin Tinder. That's how young he is. And he's walking um, along beside the river and he comes across a weir. This is the Murray River we're talking about. And there's a weir built across the river. And there's an Aboriginal man has constructed a fishing machine um, so that every time a, a fish goes through a noose, it is plucked from the river and tossed into a, bark, a bag behind this bag man's back. And um, Kirby looks at this. The, the Aboriginal man uh, refuses to look at uh, Kirby. Um, he just doesn't want to know anything about him, but he does want to show off. You know, he's a human. <laughs> and he's a man. <laughs> so he shows off. And, um, but Kirby um, says, after having witnessed this engineering triumph, um, this fishing triumph, this automatic fishing machine, he goes, I'd always heard that Aboriginal people were the laziest people on the planet and having seen a man fish in such a lazy way proved that it's true. He, j he just witnessed engineering um, and, you know, this is, this is how Australia um, looked at the country they'd come to and, and unfortunately uh, many um, are still looking at the country in that way, that Aboriginal people are some kind of intellectual aberration. Mm. So, so Kirby's pioneering friend, Peter Beveridge, um, his writing is dripping with contempt, really, mm. for Indigenous Australians, referring to old women as hags, the Wadi Wadi people as savages, but he's inadvertently uh, offering eyewitness evidence of a very different story. Mm. What's the story? Well, um, all through that uh, system on the, the Murray, Aboriginal people had built embankments so they could bring fish out of the river, guide them along into holding ponds and, and have a, a perpetual supply of fish which they could take at, at their will. And then at the end of the season, the, um, the fish could be released back into the river. Now, he sees soon after this that Aboriginal people have left um, that system and all the fish die. And he says, oh, what a waste. What a terribly, you know, wasteful way to go fishing. Aboriginal people were by that time, fortnight later, at war with uh, the Beveridges and the Kirbys. They had left because they were dead. And I'm, I'm currently being sued. I don't think this is very wise of me to talk about this, Kerry, but... I'm going Use to because I don't, I don't bloody care. Um, I'm, I'm being sued by um, a family um, who don't want me to say that their great-grandfather was a murderer. So I had to stop what I was doing last week, trawl through all the documents that I'd used as the research for Dark Emu, and I had to write down all the events that this man and his family had, had done. And I had to talk about people who were shot in both knees um, in order to prevent them from perpetuating their culture and their life. And of course, septicemia sets in and that person dies a horrible death. I had to write that down. Now I'm connected to some of those people. And to, so to do it was incredibly hurtful. Um, but this is this is the way we are in the country at the moment. And 
You know, it, it is fantastic that so many books are being sold. Mm. It is fantastic that there's this, such a mood in the country amongst a lot of people um, that we want to embrace this new history. But if it just becomes an emotional response, um, then it has been a complete failure. You've wasted your money and I've wasted my time. Um, we have to change things. I'll come back to... I'll come back to the points that would flow from that a little bit later. But um, uh, what is negative for a race of people about being typecast as nomadic or hunter-gatherers? Is it that it implies a driftlessness, a lack of social cohesion? What, what, is, what is it that, uh, that gives such a negative connotation in being described as nomadic? Well, there's nothing wrong with being a hunter and gatherer. It's a very healthy lifestyle and it's very um, environmentally friendly. Um, but it just so happens that Aboriginal Australian people were not hunters and gatherers. We still hunt. I still hunt. We still gather. I still gather. A lot of Australians hunt and gather. A lot of Aboriginal people hunt and gather and did in those times. But we also cropped. And if the reason you decide to say that you admit that Aboriginal people were hunters and gatherers, but you, you don't say that they cropped. Why don't you say they cropped? Because it refers to land ownership. And that is the basis of terra nullius. And to talk about Aboriginal people cropping from the strong, strong point of a village, of a town, of 2,000 people, uh, then you're talking about civilisation. Mm. And Australia has not had the guts for it. Um, up until now. So I talk about cropping, I talk about farming and agriculture. I know all about the hunting and gathering. I still do it myself. Um, a lot of Australians do it, you know. We've got a party called the Shooters Party. Um, and I've just they could call themselves myself. the hunter-gatherer party. Yeah. <laughs> Might be a little bit more acceptable. And, so and then we could deny them land. <laughs> And, and most other things. So, um, how significant is it in the end to accept the evidence that Aboriginal people, as you say, did build houses, did build dams, did sow, as in SOW, uh, did irrigate and till the land, did alter the course of rivers, did sow, SEW, their clothes, and did construct a system of, as you put it, pan-continental government that generated peace and prosperity. So, it, is com it completely flies in the face of the stereotype, doesn't it? It, it does, and um, I was really alarmed um, when Jim Bowler, the archaeologist who uh, worked on Lady Mungo and um, Mungo Man uh, at Lake Mungo, when he worked at Warrnambool over the last five years and released the findings of that at the start of this year, and came up with an age of occupation at Warrnambool in Victoria of 120,000 years. Australia accepted that with incredible equanimity or silence. 120,000 years is 50,000 years before out of Africa. What were Aboriginal people doing here 120,000 years ago? The old people have always said, we have always been here 
and missionaries patted us on the head um, because it, was, it seemed so stupid. Because Europeans actually know where the centre of the universe is, and it's Palestine. And um, now we have this scientific evidence of 120,000 years. It's obviously going to be older than that. We've only looked at two middens there. Um, it's going to be older. We'll find, uh, you know, young Richard Fulliger um, uh, did an examination 20, 30 years ago and he came up with an age of 120,000 years. He was howled out of the court. Mm. Um, but when, this is startling news, not for us. This is startling news for the world. We're talking about the beginnings of human society and it happened here. This is our land. And we don't get it, do we? We don't get what that means and how special it would be for this modern nation, not just to embrace it, but in embrace it, being a part of it. Yeah, loving the land, you know, loving being Australians. I see it a lot um, where people are aching to love their land, you know. I see people drop on the tarmac in Sydney and kiss the ground when they come back from overseas because they're so happy to be back in this wonderful country, this peaceful country. And um, we, we have to learn to love the country and embrace it fully. But there's this hesitation in us, you know, how, how do we love Australia? Because in the back of our mind, there's this ghost. And that ghost is saying, don't talk about the war. Um, and we, we need to get over that. We, it's going to be a bruising conversation we have with each other, but it'll be in the making of us all. I don't, even, don't even understand, Bruce, why it has to be that bruising. I think there, there is a, uh, a truth process that has to be confronted along with leading to a genuine mm. reconciliation. Mm. We've seen that truth and reconciliation process at work. There are mm. two instances I can think of that were really notable. The first was South Africa after Mandela came to power and the wonderful Bishop Tutu led that process of truth and reconciliation, which was a positive it was, about, it was about leading that country onto a new path, the same with East Timor. Um, I don't, uh, I, I mean, we can feel a sense of shame about something without it being a guilt. We can actually accept and understand things that, the, the, the truths of things that took place, even in the relatively recent past, without not being able to go to sleep at night, I would have thought. Mm. It doesn't mean it's, it's not important to understand, it's fundamentally important. But, but it should not deter people from the path, should it? Well, it shouldn't. But look what happened in Victoria when um, the uh, Education Department uh, wanted to change the history to say that Australia had been invaded rather than settled. All hell broke loose. But how, but how, real, how real grassroots and how genuinely widespread is all hell breaking loose? Or is it a handful of people who are capable of making a lot of noise and sounding like a groundswell? Mm. Particularly when we know how software in this day and age can be used specifically to turn small numbers into very large numbers through the creation of false identities on the internet. Mm. There's one small illustration of the way truth can be manipulated today. Well, I suppose that... Um uh, is explained by the fact that our press are owned by uh, casinos who, when charged with the idea that they are in cahoots with money laundering, 
take out full-page ads in their own newspapers. <laughs> Must have cost them a fortune. What, uh, what evidence of... Uh, I just want to get something more from you about pan-continental government. Describe the pan-continental government you talk about. Look, I'm, I'm, I'd love to talk about this because I want you to imagine that we're all humans um, and that... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're obviously all humans and um, we, we can love, we can hate, we can be kind, we can be cruel, we can be generous, we can be mean, we can be good-humoured, we can be grumpy. Um, this is what we like, you know. You know it in yourself, you know it in your husband. Um, you know it. You know, it's the state of humanity. You know, that's what we are as an animal. And so at some point in every nation, legislation was created or rules were created to try and handle this beast. And some people solved it by creating hierarchies, kings and queens and uh, royal families. Other people had strong men um, to decide how things went. Um, but in Australia, 120,000 years ago at least, over we don't know how long a time, old people sat down and they worried um, at their campfires about the condition of the human. What are we going to do? How do we order ourselves? How do we civilise ourselves? If we're going to live in towns together, how are we going to act in a civil way? And those old people decided that everybody would have a house. Everybody would have enough to eat. Everybody would take part in the culture. Not just rock stars, everybody would take part in the culture. And everybody, when they were old, would be looked after. And this is not a joke, this is not gilding the lily, this is not pie in the sky. This is the kind of society that was wrought by those old people. and. If you think about how the world is now run, if you think about the children in Syria when they hear a noise like that aeroplane going over now, what those kids think, how can we, how can we accept a world where that's the reality? Where some men somewhere decide that that child and that child's family have done the wrong thing, so we'll kill them. We don't talk to them, we'll kill them. And this is our world. And yet, in this country, on this continent, um, people recognising the humanity of people decided that these are the rules in place and we created this um, country where across the whole country, uh, along the, the culture lines, um, I'm not using the word song lines anymore because uh, Bruce uh, Chatwin uh, created that word and he's English, and they are beating us in the cricket. So <laughs> we want to talk about culture lines now. Um, and that carried all this information backwards and forwards across the nation. So people were in tune. People knew what the law was. They knew the, the codes of behaviour and, and how to conduct themselves. It wasn't perfect. You know, people, because people would wake up grumpy and they'd... Um, you know, they'd do something mean or nasty, but the law said they couldn't invade anyone else's land. And this is, it, it's a broad brush thing 
Obviously, it was more complicated than that. But we can see the, the rigorous structure of that even today because when one of our big stories is about the whale, Australia doesn't know it yet because we're, we're just developing this story, finding all the links about it. And the whale at Eden in New South Wales tells the same story as the whale at Margaret River because that story is carried across the song lines. And the story the whale tells, tells pardon me, is that when sea level rose and people had to enter each other's land, the whale said, I'll show you how to save yourself from this sea level rise. But when you get there, you'll be in the land of your cousins and your cousins, will, you'll be asking them for sanctuary and you will have to be modest. You will have to be polite because those people are going to give you land. And you will have to do that without warfare, says the whale. And this is a, a brilliant human concept. We need to make this our number one export, perhaps after Vegemite, but <laughs> make peace our number one export. I am not Pollyanna. I am the most sceptical of people. I barrack for Richmond. Um, I <laughs> Could be worse. I am, you know, I'm a cynic. You can tell I'm a cynic because um, I tell such bad jokes. Um, but I believe in this. I believe that humans are capable of creating a world which is better than the one we perpetrate today. Bruce, um, I, I hate to interrupt the flow, but I do, I do want to come back and correct what I think was an inaccuracy in what you were saying earlier about, about the casinos and money laundering in the ad, because I think that the, the papers or the publication you're referring to actually broke the story of money laundering, and, and although that uh, news organisation has been taken over by the Nine Network, or Nine Entertainment, the Nine Network, as far as I know, uh, is no longer owned or controlled in any way by mm. um, James Packer, who mm. ran the casinos. So I, d I yeah. don't think that's quite um, right to say um, that. It, it is intriguing, and I, I accept the correction because I know it's true. Um, <laughs> because I, I think, I, I think that um, uh, that story was broken on 60 Minutes. Is that right? No, no, it was broken in the in, uh, in the Sun Herald and then shown on 60 right. Minutes because the Fairfax. Mm. Um, Empire is now owned by Nine. Yeah. So where that story might once have been done in collaboration between the Herald and the Age and Four Corners, yeah. they're now instructed that they do those pro those kinds of cooperative mm. uh, journalistic assignments with the Nine Network. Is but that, but they, but yeah. I don't believe they have any mm. uh, controlling influence in any way over the casino. Anyway, let, let's but, move but on. Look, let's it was not also get interesting down. that um, when uh, the federal police started to invade the homes of journalists because of the leaking of that information uh, about the... It was the only war. a temporary invasion, Bruce. Yeah. But, <laughs> but one of them... It was only eight or nine hours. But one of them was um, um, uh, a Sun-Herald journalist. Uh, no, Melbourne Herald Sun Melbourne, journalist. Melbourne. It gets very confused. Well, that's worse. Now listen, let's... <laughs> or, that's worse or better. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, about first, tell, me, tell me about first Australians as astronomers. Well, I think this relates to the law. Um, and 
if you are fortunate to live away from city lights and you can get a good look at the, the night sky and it's incredible at the moment because the, uh, the moon is down um, so you get a, a really beautiful view of it. Uh, you'll see that there's a, uh, a space in the Milky Way in the shape of a giant emu and that's what I, I the, the title of Dark Emu is taken from that, that great shape in the, in the sky. Um, and this is one of the creator spirits of, of the world. And so for every um, story about Scorpio, uh, for every great story um, about the Southern Cross, Aboriginal people have an alternative story, an alternative vision. And we were talking about it last night and a lot of these tales are about morality and eventually that they end up about sharing and caring and all of those stories are in the night sky and um, it's going to be wonderful as the years roll by and more and more young Aboriginal people, thanks to publishers like Mugabala, um, uh, but other publishers as well, we start telling these stories. And, you know, there, there have been um, some great Australian writers who have talked about um, these things but I think the future is going to be rich with um, Australian story, Australian Aboriginal story, Australian Aboriginal night sky, um, because these stories are ours. We don't have to talk about the hunter. We don't have to, to have the man with the sword in his hand. We can have the possum in the tree. I'll, uh, I'll never forget at the height of a very inflammatory uh, political debate about the native title legislation that the Keating government had introduced to put into law uh, the effect of the Marbo, the historic High Court Marbo decision. Uh, when Tim Fisher, the Deputy Coalition Leader and future Deputy Prime Minister, observed at a national conference of the National Party that Aboriginal people hadn't, quote unquote, even been able to invent a wheeled cart. Now, if you met Tim Fisher tomorrow, what would you say to him? I'd say Tim, because um, we'd be mates. Because um, um, he's not a bad man. No, that's right. Um, I, I'd say, Tim, here's a cart. I want you to attach that cart to that kangaroo. <laughs> but... Um, but in, in, in other cultures, in other cultures that had wheeled carts, they could have been pulled by slaves. Mm. So you didn't need to harness a, a kangaroo, and, all you needed was slaves. And, you know, this is what we have to learn about this country. Um, you know, I have, um, you know, close links with um, New Zealand Maori people, um, but Maori had slaves. And, you know, people say, you know, why... Why in Australia we've got 400 languages? Why don't you be like New Zealand and just have the one? We'd all be able to learn it. We'd all be able to have a country like New Zealand where there, there, there's Maori language, there's English. They're the two national languages. You know, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? Well, because we do have 400 nations and we didn't have slaves. And the reason we didn't have slaves was because of the government. The Aboriginal government forbade the whole idea of enslavement and imprisonment. Um, so, it's, it's a credit to us that our country is so complicated, that our government 
is so complex um, that our decision-making in Aboriginal society is so slow because it's careful. So, so tell me... Because it isn't the whole, the whole story isn't just about how non-Indigenous Australians were led to believe the negative stereotypes of inferiority. How, how do you... Th which, which in turn, of course, um, fed prejudice coming out of ignorance. How do you think it has impacted on Indigenous people over the last 230 years to, to feel and hear the echoes of their own inferiority? I, I think the repercussions of that are, are being felt today. There are writers here, Aboriginal writers, who are feeling that in their bones and they're feeling it in their minds. And the stresses that they are suffering are 230 years old, I'm sure of it. Because if you can imagine you've got a government like that, you've got that pasture over there of yam daisy and over there you've got the grasses you're going to convert into flower and you, you're watching them and you look at them and go, that's going to be ready in three weeks. And then suddenly you're at war, a war you don't understand. You lose the land, so you lose the law, you lose your crops, you lose your family. That trauma is, is so huge, it just washes uh, across the country and it hits the east coast and it bounces back and it hits the west coast and it just goes on and on and on and on. It is still happening. It's still happening to our people. And I see it all the time. And what, what the greatest damage that has done to our people is our kids have been, you know, taught this story of Australia where they were no good. Aboriginal society was no good. They had to be re rescued by the British um, and had to be Christianised and capitalised and all of those other things. Split. And so our kids begin to believe that. And so the biggest task we have is to get our kids to believe the truth of their elders, the truth of the, the incredible intellectual rigour and the incredible peace of their culture and make those kids proud again so they won't hurt themselves. Because kids are hurting, our Aboriginal kids are hurting themselves. Lots of kids are hurting themselves. So it's not just the Aboriginal society that needs to change. You know, we need to help our Aboriginal kids to be proud, to stop hurting themselves because there's no need, because they come from a, a great culture of the world. But we also need to talk to non-Aboriginal kids and say, son, young woman, don't do that. You know, and the young woman and the, and the young boy, both black and white, I'll say, yeah, but, you know, this country praises corruption. This country praises theft. You know, so how am I supposed to grow up strong when the society is based on lies? And it's not entirely based on lies because um, goodness still happens. But I think a lot of our kids are damaged because of what adults do. And we, we need to help the kids understand that is not the way we should live. There are many signs of hope in terms of where Indigenous Australians find themselves today. And I, I remember the stories of the first Indigenous Australian legal and medi medical graduates from universities. And it wasn't that long ago no. 
There are now hundreds, thousands of Indigenous graduates with many more in the pipeline. Mm. Yet, yet the stories of Indigenous deprivation, dysfunction and obscenely disproportionate incarceration are still stark and staring us in the face. So what, what do you draw from those two bookends of modern Indigenous social and economic history and why is reconciliation so important in that big picture? We, we need to save kids. Um, we need to save the country in, in some ways. But you've, um, got, you've got these bookends, you know. There is, the bookend of, there is the bookend of despair, but there is the bookend of hope. How much hope do you draw from that bookend? Well, I don't have a choice. I've got four grandkids. They're intelligent kids. Um, I see children in school all the time. Those people have to have the chance to solve the problems that my generation failed to, refused to. And we were talking about it over there with Carla Dickens, a great friend of mine. Um, and we were saying we have to do this. We have to give her daughter, Ginger, a chance. We have to give our young people a chance to solve the problems that we were too blind to solve. And so I, I, I am hopeful because I see incredible young people. There's a young man walking around here today who's trying to get us to come to a meeting up the coast um, because there's a company that said they were going to burn sugarcane to create electricity. Um, instead of that, they're cutting down forests. So they're burning wood to turn stuff into electricity. That young man walked around here today. He told a story to everybody. He worked his guts out. And I thought, that is so hard to do. You know, to dedicate yourself to that for no personal gain mm. is so hard to do. We need to support that young man. So we're getting close to time now, but I want to come back to the, uh, to the Uluru Statement from the heart. Um, I want to know, um, I mean, an obvious achievement for so many leaders from so many different nations to actually come together with what, you, with what is in one sense a very sophisticated, in another sense a very logical, simple set of processes. Mm. Now, it's, it's, been, it's been almost summarily dismissed uh, at one of its most important elements, which is to have a representative voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution, which is not a third mm. chamber of parliament, mm. which does not subvert democracy. Mm. It is a, an advisory voice only that lives or dies on the power of its arguments as advice to government which might be considering policy that will reflect back on Indigenous Australians. So, <laughs> what is the personal impact that that statement and the achievement of creating that statement has had on you? And what hope do you have that not tomorrow or next month or even next year, but that it can still um, make it to that end game where it, it has constitutional rec recognition and is put um, uh, in, bipartisan, in, a, in a bipartisan way into the constitution? Well, it makes you weep. It is so modest. The statement is so modest. It asks for nothing. It, all it does is offer. Uh, an opportunity to talk. Um, it is so beautifully written. I still don't know who wrote that. Um, you know, as a writer, I'm envious. It is a beautiful document. It'll be, 
It'll be one of the great documents of the world. Um, but a lot of Aboriginal people were disappointed when it came out because, because it was so modest, um, made so few claims on government. Um, but the thing about it was that Aboriginal people came from everywhere to Uluru to work on that document. Over three, four days, they worked hard, they argued, they upset each other. They, some people walked out, they came back again. Argument, 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 argument. Then they wrote one of the most beautiful documents that's ever been written um, because I think the old law was operating. Makarata was operating. And so I think it's a genuinely important thing. Um, I remember when uh, uh, Rudd was uh, reading out the sorry statement and the night before, I was really suspicious. You know, I t said I was a skeptic. I was a skeptic of the, R the Rudd apology and I saw Marcia Langton cry on television and I knew it was fair income. <laughs> she doesn't cry for no one. <laughs> but on the, she, other, on she, the other hand, she's assisted a lot of other people to cry. <laughs> she's an intellectual. And um, if Marcy is emotionally moved by a, a situation, then I know it's okay to be emotionally moved. Last question. Uh, given the way you've seen the sustained response to your book over years, given the way you have seen audiences like this responding, and this has got to be one of the biggest uh, audiences of the festival, uh, and the extent to which you've seen this kind of mood replicated around the country where you have spoken, is it possible, do you think, and, and, and in the context of that sort of old uh, political warrior Neville Rann saying years ago, you can never afford to get too far ahead of the mob, isn't it possible that the mob is actually ahead of the politicians on this one? Uh. I'm certain of it, and um, I think we've made a big mistake in expecting uh, politicians to come up with policy. The people, the people need to come up with a policy and sell it to the politicians because they're the, we vote them in, we pay them to do our service. I think there's great change to happen, but it won't, uh, it won't happen by us talking to each other because we're going to agree with each other. What changes? Nothing. So this could be just a lot of emotion, a lot of sentiment, a lot of warm air rising and disappearing. Um, we need to talk to people we know do not agree with us. It'll be in uncomfortable, this is what I said before, it'll be bruising, it'll be hard because we'll be talking to people who'll be rude to us. We must not be rude back, we must be logical. We must just keep talking to those to whom we know um, are going to disagree with us because that is the only way to get a better agreement, not the same agreement. Now, can I just ask somebody uh, to confirm to me what my memory tells me, that this session is supposed to have finished one, uh, three minutes ago. It... Oh, so you didn't bother to make them? <laughs> oh, okay, I'm very good at that. Um, so we've come to the end of our session, but fantastic talk and we could, we could go on easily for another hour. Please thank this man. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. 
This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.